from New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this episode of SVU, Matt and I prepare to navigate the delicate line between the heartbreakingly whimsical and the twee as we talk about David Lowry's Ode to Morning and the Passage of Time, a ghost story, currently streaming on Amazon. Inspired by a ghost story and its already famous scene of grief-stricken emotional eating, we were going to give this episode a pie theme and also talk about some other pie-heavy movies that are also available for streaming or rent. You know, Waitress, Titus, Labor Day, American Pie, Shane. But it's the new year and we're trying to cut back on sugar, so instead we opted for the more low-in-carbs topic of ghosts. So we'll be giving you some spectral streaming recommendations instead. But before that, let's take a look at a ghost story. shouldn't be so hard. I really don't want to talk about this anymore tonight, okay? Well, can we talk about it tomorrow? Okay, maybe... how we do things on film spotting streaming video units at the end of every episode we let you tell us what we should tackle for our next main review by voting on one of three options last time we gave you three recent indies david lowry's a ghost story on amazon janiska bravo's lemon on hulu and the rodarte sisters woodshock on amazon And, you know, sometimes there's a contest. This time there really was no contest. A Ghost Story was the runaway winner, getting almost 65% of the vote. Lowry made A Ghost Story kind of on the sly in the summer of 2016, uh, just after he'd made his Disney film Pete's Dragon. Uh, And with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara, who'd been the stars of his 2013 film Ain't Them Bodies Saints. In this film, they play a married couple living in Texas. No names. It never comes up. But we do know that he's a musician and that she is pushing for them to move to a new place. And it's the major cause of stress in their lives. They're kind of torn between staying and going. Um, Well, at least until he dies in a car accident in front of their place. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Uh, And she's left to grieve while he observes her coming back as a ghost in a very... It's the great pumpkin Charlie Brown kind of fashion. Uh, you know, he's covered in a sheet with two eyes cut into it. And by the way, I saw this film at Sundance and David Lowry said afterwards that they did shoot a lot of the scenes with Casey Affleck under the sheet. Uh, and then sometimes it didn't really work out that way. So they did reshoots, uh, did some puppeteering, but there are definitely some scenes in which it is Casey Affleck under the sheet. Uh, it's really an image that I would say is emblematic of what the film tries to do as a whole which is to tackle grand ideas about the nature of existence through a framing that's very kind of deliberately mundane and grounded and intimate. Now, before we get into discussing the movie, I wanted to say two things. First, given where we're at right now, it seems to necessitate a mention that Affleck was sued by two women for sexual harassment on the set of I'm Still Here in 2010. It's had a lot of court. How that affects your desire to see the film or listen to us talk about it is, of course, up to you, but we did want to acknowledge it. Uh, And I also wanted to note that we are going to talk about the turn that a ghost story takes in its second half. I feel like calling it a spoiler doesn't quite seem right. Uh, But if you do want to go into this film fresh, and I did, and I felt happier for it, uh, come back to this podcast after. Uh, That said, Matt, I know that this was one of your favorite films of the year. Yes. And it was one of mine. It was not in my top 10, like I believe it was in yours, but Mm -hmm. it was definitely a favorite. I guess what I want to know is, to play devil's advocate a bit, Okay, this is a movie about basically two hipsters uh, (laughs) who eat, like binge eat pie at one point to deal with grief and who make uh, indie rock songs in their home computers and... uh, 
And then one of them turns into this very adorable version of a ghost. And there is a part in the movie in which musician Will Oldham holds forth a monologue about the nature of human existence and how nothing will actually ever last. Right. Uh, I feel like there are ways in which this film, if done wrong, could be unbearable. And I'm sure there are some people out there who just could not go along with it. Was there ever a moment in it where you kind of fought it a little or were you in, in it from the beginning? Um, I, I was in it from the beginning. I can't think of an example. I also saw it at Sundance. And, you know, at Sundance, there, there was almost no explanation of what it was besides the the title, the cast, and the director, and, and like a brief one sentence that was like, it's a ghost. You know, it's like, there was almost no description of what it was. And so I want to echo your sentiment that if you haven't seen it yet, and you want to watch it that way, watch it unspoiled, this was a pretty special movie to have no idea where it was going, because it does go to some places you do not expect. And so... I would say definitely if you haven't seen it, if you want to really experience it the the right way, quote unquote, I would I would listen to us afterwards. But in terms of like any moment that it, it, it lost me, there really wasn't one. I was just dazzled by the movie from beginning to end. And it does take some strange turns. There are some very long scenes, in the, especially in the beginning, that test your patience. Um, but for me, I was just I because I had absolutely no idea where it was going. I just sat there with my jaw on the floor. I was like, I couldn't believe what I was seeing a lot of the time. Like, yeah, here's a scene where Rooney Mara just eats a pie. And there was something transfixing about it in the moment. I suppose if the movie hadn't done what it does later in the film, if it doesn't retroactively sort of justify all of that quote unquote time wasting in the beginning, maybe in, maybe at the end I would have said, Oh, it wasn't really worth it. But, but the 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 pie eating and all of those very long scenes at the beginning are very much all part of what this movie is about, which is time and how we experience time and um, sort of our tiny place in this grand cosmic thing that is, that is life and existence. And so, uh, yeah, I guess not knowing where it was going, I went along for the ride and felt like I was completely rewarded by the end of it, by this sort of journey that – the ghost character takes us on and every time i've seen it again and i've seen it a few times now since sundance i just i'm sort of like even more impressed by it because when you when you once you do know where it's going there's all sorts of beautiful touches that you might miss the first time and you know that theme about time i mean it's so embedded even in the early scenes which you might not you definitely or at least i didn't maybe i'm stupid i don't know but i didn't there's things you don't catch the first time through like in the very beginning when she's um rooney maris asking casey affleck about the piano and he says i just had it tuned and she says that was a year ago and and so it's already introducing the slippery nature of time. And then like a scene later, the first scene with the ghost or at least then they wake up in the middle of the night and there's strange noises. I mean, one of the lines Casey Affleck has is what time is it? And it's just very like kind of like it's almost like subliminally introducing the theme before it fully presents itself. And so it's the kind of movie that while I think it's great to watch totally blind i think it's also great to go back and rewatch it and rediscover all that stuff so yeah this was one of my favorite movies of the year and i've seen it several times now and every time i see it i just find new things about it that i'm like kind of like there's things about it that i've remembered the whole time and then there are little moments that either i discover or that i forgot and then I re, re like the scene you're making fun of the music and stuff, but like the, I love the music, the scene where she's listening to the music in two different time periods. Mm-hmm. And then she's reaching out, stretches out her hand and the ghost is like there, but just out of reach. It's like heartbreaking. It's so beautiful. Anyway, I'm rambling. I like this movie. Yeah. I, let me just be clear. I'm not making fun of the music. I All think right. that like this movie has a lot of trappings ah. that people were very resistant to when after it left Sundance and people talked about it and it was marketed. And I think that I just saw people online be like, this looks like the most twee thing of all time. Oh, okay. I, I missed like, all that. I don't, I see, that's funny. I, I never thought of it as twee or hipstery. I mean, I saw someone say I couldn't like, um, surely that movie with Casey Affleck in a sheet must be a comedy. And it made me very frustrated because there's like, obviously the image is supposed to be funny. It like, is funny at times. It's, right. Like it's not supposed to be like this deeply serious evocation of right. what it's like in the, the afterlife. I think that one of the things that this movie does 
and does so well is that it kind of fights against our natural desire to find it ridiculous to talk about grand themes like mortality and death mm -hmm. because they seem so, so, so serious, yes. you know, and that like to, to actually try and get sincerely at the idea that we are just like minuscule, our, our existences are minuscule in the exist, you know, in the grand scheme of time. Uh, and yet at the same time, they're all we have. Mm -hmm. And that like losing someone is this, deeply profound experience you know that you just don't get them back you have the moments with them and that's all you get and i think that I, I mean in some ways the movie feels like a battle to try and get over the distance we want to put on on our ability to talk about grand themes by by almost like putting them in air quotes in the beginning mm -hmm. you know like the, the ghost which i think is like a very funny image sometimes and like a really sad one increasingly totally. uh you know that uh lowry himself plays the ghost who lives next door there's a ghost in like a, a like a floral sheet yes uh and, and they the, the two ghosts have conversations in subtitles and it's both hilarious and yes. heartbreaking and really sad yes. i know the way the like small arc that happens there is just so kind of like perfect mm -hmm. uh and just like echoes these larger themes of time slipping away as well. Um, but I do think that like, there are ways in which I, in, in some ways, like Don Hertzfeld, it like this movie did remind me about how Don Hertzfeld uses the animator who we've talked about before on this mm -hmm. podcast uses uh, like stick figures to get at the same giant themes. Like in some ways having this deceptively simple in is a way to tackle grand things just as effectively as having a huge canvas. Right. Um, but I, let's talk about the aesthetics of a, this a bit. Because this is actually, I, I mean, I don't, every once in a while I feel like this movie flickers into cinematography conversations. But mm. it really, I think, may be my favorite shot movie of the year. Mm. Uh, Andrew Dores Palermo is the cinematographer. But it, just in terms of, is very kind of like carefully, uh, carefully composed yes um and it's done in a square uh, with rounded edges with rounded edges it's almost like an instagram <laughs> like mm, there's something I didn't about really it think about it that way but there's something about it that's like it's old timey but it's also not yes. old timey obviously these are people right. who live in the present day. yes um but i i am curious what your thoughts are of it because we talked uh, you talked a little bit about it about time slipping away and this is a movie that in some ways is the way it's shot like the camera guides how time passes mm -hmm. yeah well it's what's great about it is it's so it seems so sort of deceptively simple in the beginning so that when things start to happen that are a little out of the ordinary they catch you in sort of a wonderful surprise like the first time that after casey affleck has died and he's now the ghost and you know time has gone so slowly so far like the long these long takes like with rooney mara eating the pie right you're so with her in this like excruciating yes. moment. Yes. Where you desperately want time to accelerate. And it really is helpful in putting you in that because that's how grief feels. You just want, you know, like when you're miserable like that, it's just like it feels like it'll never end. It's so painful. It's so excruciating. You just desperately want to be somewhere else. And then a few scenes later, as her character sort of moves on with her life. She starts to like move. There's like a shot where she exits the, the 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 house where they've lived over and over again without a cut, and she's like there, and she closes the door, and suddenly she's back in there, and she and it's like all of a sudden it's like oh there's some there's almost like a little magic going on in this movie that I didn't even think was going to be there, and so that's wonderful. And then you know by the end of the movie where we've gone, you know it's like it's become like a a futuristic Blade Runner 2049 thing at one point. There's like a Meeks cutoff scene. It's, and it just feels like, even though the movie is almost entirely set in that one little space, that little patch of land where this house is, and then these other people live or this whole city sprouts up, it, it, it's, it's, you never know where you're going to go next in this weird way. Like, it seems like anything is possible, which is another reason why it was so exciting to see it not knowing where it was going, because it's like, where am I going to go next on this wild um, journey. So I appreciate that you mentioned the cinematography because I do think it's a beautifully um, shot movie. And I haven't talked about the use of color, but like in terms of like flashbacks and flash forwards, the way that the colors are used to indicate different times is also really lovely. It's a it is a very well shot movie. There are even there are scenes in which after that first montage, after Rooney Mara's character has moved away, which is another scene that is like 
really kind of like wrenchingly emotional and sad and beautiful. Um, the that the ghost is like left alone in the house as like people start moving in and the reveals that that's done where the ghost like moves from one room to another and like looks around and there's like a new family that's moved in. Right. Like it's so much of it, instead of like it happening in a cut, it happens with like moving through the house with blocking and with camera movement. And I really loved that. I love the visual of that, that, uh, you know, as you said, this, a lot of this movie is about time, but it's also about, how the ghost's feeling of time passing is not a human feeling, but time just starts slipping away under his fingertips. And uh, the the ways in which the house becomes like uh, a way, like moving around the house, just him like drifting around the house becomes a way of moving through time is like, I think really remarkable and very kind of cinematic in a way that I appreciated. And I like those scenes too, because, you know, this is, again, in terms of like taking these very, these very iconic images and ideas and giving them a little, just a little nudge, like the, it's a, you know, it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, uh, a ghost and, and making it this very sympathetic figure. Those scenes, later scenes, you know, some of them are like a classic haunted house movie where the family moves into the house and something scary happens, but they're all from the perspective of the ghost instead of the people. And instead of it being scary, although there are some moments that are a little scary, it's so empathetic to the ghost. It like makes you think of all those times you've watched a horror movie and sympathized with the people. And then in this movie, you're like sympathizing with the ghost. It's like, it is his house and he can't leave and he's trapped there and these people won't shut up and they won't leave him alone and they throw awful parties and... I just love the way that it does that, is that it takes all of the things that you expect from a movie called A Ghost Story, and it gives them to you, but not in the way you expect, which is another sort of delightful surprise about it. Yeah, and there's something about how the more the movie goes on, the more that that totally expressionless two eyes becomes, it feels like it just conveys wealths of emotion. (laughs) Right. Well, the blankness of it, I mean, works to its advantage, because you can put anyone and any emotion onto it. It can be very comedic because it doesn't have an expression. So when there are funny moments, they're just incredibly dry and witty. But it's also, you know, you can't, it's so trapped and inert that in these heartbreaking moments, it's just even sadder because it can't even like express an emotion. And it's it's so um, heartbreaking. And then it just makes the end of the movie, to me, like even more beautiful because, I mean, we we could talk about the ending, I guess, but just like, Everything about it, the fact that you don't know what's on the sheet of paper and you don't know what the ghost is feeling in that moment. It's just so open to interpretation that I just I just love everything about that. Well, I I will say, like, when I saw it at Sundance, I I think the second screening, the audience gasped when time came back around again. Mm. That, like, because you understood what it was the film was doing. Right. And I think... It is like it is it the the fact that it manages to balance like this very small story of two people like just two ordinary people and then this story that like goes to literally like the ends of time to the past and the present and the future um mm-hmm. I don't know there's really something about that I think that's why I went along even with the monologue which is like a part where the movie just stops for this monologue mm-hmm. this like drunken party monologue in which someone holds forth on the nature of existence. Uh, and I think that like, it says something for what the movie accomplishes that that monologue works so well Mm -hmm. because it's ridiculous and profound at the same time. Right. Yeah. And I think there's something nice about how that monologue, it is like, it tells you the entire story of the universe essentially in this one scene, which echoes the movie, which takes you on kind of this entire journey through the entire loop of time. Um, but it does it. The rest of the movie does it mostly non-verbally, and that scene is so verbose. And so I think there's a nice – both a contrast there and a mirroring there that it's sort of like – it does a nice job of kind of – it's like the movie in microcosm, but it's different than a lot of the rest of the movie. It gives you kind of a different tone on the same theme. It's like a piano piece where there's one part that's like the bridge, you know, and it kind of echoes part of the rest of the movie, but it's it's doing it in like a – I don't know, in a minor key or doing it in a different way where it's, again, it's hitting the same ideas, but going about it in a, in a, in a different way. In the same way that the whole notion of the ghost being trapped in the house 
is echoing all of the stuff that in the beginning of the movie, which at first you don't really have a grip on it, but it's all this stuff about their relationship. The, even though we don't learn a ton about these people, there's so much about it where she wants to leave. He doesn't want to leave. Then he becomes literally trapped in the house for all of eternity and has to find, like kind of grow to leave. He has to like learn something. He has to grow as a ghost, a spirit, a person, whatever you want to call it. And so I love that aspect of it too that it is even as it is this sort of grand cosmic journey it is also about the idea of sometimes you need to let go sometimes you even if you love a place or a thing or a person you have to be able to um set it free and like you said it's so both profound and a little silly at the same time but i i i think that i i think it just nails it i really do and and you know seeing it multiple times i every time i see it i'm just kind of like blown away that this little thing that he made this just like off the cuff with and quiet and secret a hundred thousand bucks or whatever they spent it's it's um it's incredible and uh, david larry we haven't talked a ton about him i can't say i was the hugest fan of his before this i've liked his other movies but this was the one where i was like holy cow and um where I'm like, okay, well, whatever he does next uh, for the foreseeable future, it's like it's you know immediately my most anticipated movie for whenever it's coming out. Yeah, this was definitely my favorite of his as well. And I do want to say we talked a lot about the kind of bigness of this, the mm. big, but but there's something about how it is very eloquent with regard to these characters and their life together without needing to give a lot, without even needing to give them names. Right. That I think is really is there's like a deafness to that, that I did want to call out, you know, that it shows you the ways in which they can feel frustrated, that they can feel like they're not communicating, you know, that right before that scene you mentioned where she listens to the song in two different time periods, you know, she is saying like, we have to talk about this. Like this is not a decision that we can just keep postponing. And just like the wealth of frustration that that speaks to. But I think also even the scene that we see like more than once of this overhead shot of them in bed, uh, that is just such like a really lovely evocation of intimacy, mm-hmm. of just like married intimacy of like mm-hmm. two people and the ways in which you can just like be close. And I think that, I don't know, there's something really lush about that, that makes you invested in these people when you don't get to spend actually a lot of time with them right. as people. His smaller movies definitely bear an influence of Malick, I would say. You know, I don't know about Pete's Dragon so much, but Ain't Them Body Saints and this. You you, you feel that the, the influence and doing some of the things like not giving the characters names and not using a lot of dialogue, some of the elliptical editing. But I just feel like he's kind of doing the Malick thing way better than Malick has been lately, at least to me. Well, it's just, I don't think he tries to do... You know, I think that there's a lot of poetry. There's a ton of poetry in this, obviously, but it's not like all of those scenes in the house in the like early on. And then later when we return to it, have like real sensory detail. This like slightly beat up house. Yeah. You know, the, and, they, like, and, and as we've said, he has a sense of humor, too, mm-hmm. which has been really missing from, from some of from those some of recent films, yes. films. Uh, And that like the fact that it it lays out a whole their life together. If not, like, certainly not completely in ways that you feel like you understand them so quickly. I mean, that's really, I think there is something there that, uh, that, yeah, deserves to be highlighted. Mm-hmm. Like, it takes a lot to make you invest in a relationship when, for so much of the movie, that relationship is, like, over, you know, is being mourned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's two pretty enthusiastic recommendations for a ghost story. I guess we encouraged people who hadn't seen it not to listen to this. But if you have seen it and are listening to this, maybe then instead of saying watch it, we would say watch it again. If you've only seen it once, I definitely think it's a movie that rewards uh, uh, at least one more viewing to really soak in all those cool little beautiful little details. It is available right now on Amazon Prime. All right, we're talking about ghost movies. 
on this episode of SVU in our Q-Shot segment. It's a little bit broad, so I don't know that we have anything specific to say beforehand. Maybe we'll just dive into our picks. Allison, do you want to go first? Sure. I'll All go right. First. Go first. Uh, well, I wanted to take this opportunity to talk about... I was looking for movies about ghosts that were not necessarily scary. Because aside from a few moments in a ghost story, which it does get a little unsettling. It has a few moments. But that it's not aiming to frighten you. No. Uh, And so, you know, I looked in the the smaller realm of the ghost romance or the ghost comedy. Um, And actually, the, the film I most wanted to talk about is not only not available digitally, it's not even available, as far as I can tell, on, on Region 1 DVD. It seems to be sold out. Uh, that would be truly madly deeply with Juliet Stevenson and Alan Rickman. Uh, so I went with a movie that I had not yet seen. It was a good chance to catch up with a classic that was a blind spot of mine. The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, which is available for rent. Uh, this would be the Joseph Mankiewicz, um, let's call it a supernatural romance, starring Gene Tierney as young widow Lucy Muir and Rex Harrison as Captain Daniel Gregg, the sea captain whose ghost lingers in the seaside cottage that Muir, uh, Lucy Muir and her young daughter and her housekeeper move into. It's England. It's early 1900s. She's getting a ton of grief from her in-laws for daring to move out after um, a year after her husband has died. Uh, and then, of course, she moves into this cottage. And what's there? A ghost, a salty ghost. Um, it, you know, there's a lot about the dynamic early on between Daniel and Lucy uh, that's very sitcom-y. You know, they bicker, they... Uh, they disagree. One of them's this kind of like man's man. And the other one is this young woman who's like, uh, finally become independent. In fact, there was a sitcom based on, on the movie that played for a few years. Wow. Uh, and that, uh, I think kind of was more comic than, than the movie. The movie itself is actually really surprising. I was surprised by how bittersweet it was. Matt, have you seen this movie? No. Okay, so I'm going to. Oh, you're going to spoil I'm going to, it for I'm going me. to give a little bit of a spoiler. Here. All right, spoilers well, for this. the this. 1947 film, <laughs> The Ghost, Ghost and, and Mrs. Mrs. Muir. Uh, so I will say this: uh, I think that in a more contemporary movie, there would be this real push to. I mean, I think you would even guess what I'm going to say. Like Lucy, they have to fall in love. Well, they fall in love, but then Lucy would, you know. He kill herself say, to be no, with him that would be an interesting twist would be like you have murder to find someone a living man oh you know have oh, like a, oh have the body then, so they could no to be like i have a lot of on. ideas i know you have a lot of dark ideas frankly well, i don't know if you should be it's been a rough weekend yeah <laughs> um, but that uh you know oh you have to let her go this is a dead end of a right. romance yes no pun intended you know, dead yes end. yes exactly uh meet this like new right. man and i You're give right. you my blessing and i send you off to like you know be alive uh, yes and truly live now yes. you're right that would be the more conventional that would be expected right non-disturbing idea yeah uh and and certainly at a point in the movie after after they've like written his memoirs together so that they can save the house sell it and of course it becomes a bestseller okay and they've fallen in love no. uh lucy meets a a dashing alive gentleman <laughs> and and he's everything i'm looking for dashing and and breathing right and and the captain is like at first kind of put out by this and then you know kind of relinquishes his his even like his place in her memory uh and then uh maybe because he's played by george sanders that should be a clue this this gentleman turns out to be a total cad Uh like he's married he has two kids already he just likes to go on and have these like romantic flings in which he swoops women off their feet sweeps them off their feet um, and I think that there is something to that where this movie has like a really dark view of like grand romance, uh, very like Lucy says of her late husband who she admits herself she loved, but like he was not a particularly exceptional man in any way. Uh, it was kind of like an, it was not the world's greatest marriage for her as much as she, she implies she fell in love with him because he kissed her right after she'd been reading a romance novel. <laughs> so some of the after effects of it were apparently lingering and she was mm-hmm. 17. Um, and then later when someone comes along and tries to kind of sweep her off her feet, he's also, he's not the person that he pretends to be. Uh, there is this message in which the ghost in this movie, you know, and, and Harrison is extremely charming, but uh, the ghost in this movie is like this unattainable idea of romance, mm. right? The only person who actually can follow through on romantic promises is dead. <laughs> it's a ghost. <laughs> um, 
And there is something also with this undercurrent in it that I hadn't expected that is about uh, this woman kind of choosing independence at a time when it's kind of socially uh, it's considered, uh, you know, uh, shocking a little like mo- another man comes around and tries to marry her just because she needs a man in the house. Um, and she says this one point uh, at one point, she says uh, when her daughter is like, you've been alone so much of your life, she says, you can be much more alone with other people than you are by yourself, even if it's people you love. Which is another kind of like extremely bittersweet sentiment uh, for a movie that I think is still is looked upon very fondly as this uh, as this kind of love story. Um, so I think that the, the the movie introduces for a little bit and then kind of lets you off the hook with the idea that maybe the captain is not real at all. <laughs> you know that maybe he's just like someone she's imagined mm-hmm. as a kind of companion, like looking at his portrait. But that's I think maybe even too dark. <laughs> too dark a, a a kind of possibility but I, it is like a lovely little movie uh and i'm glad i finally got to see it but yeah i there was uh there there was like a, a complexity to its refusal to just kind of send everyone off to the most obvious happy ending or the kind of most obvious contemporary message that i i appreciated so that is the ghost in mrs muir and it is available for rent well that's a good pick in fact uh you know i wanted to just like you, I, be, I wanted to sort of honor a ghost story and, and do something that's not a sort of traditional horror movie. And the first thing I thought of was The Ghost of Mrs. Muir, which I also hadn't seen, but you claimed it, so I couldn't watch it. By the way, do you, do you know the name of the author of the original book, The Ghost and Cap... Uh, it's The Ghost of Captain Greg and Mrs. Muir. Um, it's it's a, woman, a pseudonym. Right. It's a woman it's under a pseudonym. But do you know the, the pseudonym? R.A. Dick. R.A. Dick. <laughs> Definitely does not sound like a fake name at all. Right. Well, what's amazing is that there is a whole thread in the movie that in which she goes to try and sell this manuscript and the, the publisher is like, oh, I don't do women's fiction. Oh, blah, blah, blah. nice. And like, and then she has to be like, no, it's a man's not. It's like a I man's. I wrote it. I yes. mean, a, a friend of mine whose yeah. name is R.A. Dick she, wrote it. Yeah, she, and, and that and must be it. a man. She, like, she, and, and, and there's like very much that undercurrent. So the fact that R.A. Uh, Dick must be a man. Yes, Josephine Leslie, oh. the uh, the author of the original. Anyway, book. I just thought that was really funny. Yes, that that was the pseudonym of this grand romance was written by <laughs> R. A. Dick. <laughs> anyway, since I couldn't do the Ghost of Mrs. Muir, I instead went with uh, another uh, classic film that I'm embarrassed to admit I had not seen until this week. At least in total, I'd seen parts of it, I'd seen clips of it, scenes, but not the whole film. And that is uh, Ugetsu from director Kenji. Mizuguchi. It's currently available on Filmstruck and also on Canopy, which is a relatively new site. We've mentioned it, I believe, on the podcast before, but it was just back in the news because it was recently announced that um, they're getting a bunch of films by the great documentary director Frederick Wiseman. And Canopy, again, just briefly, it's this site with a lot of classic films and television, and it's free if you belong to a library or academic institution that's affiliated with the site. So, for example, I belong to the Brooklyn Public Library, and the Brooklyn Public Library has an agreement with Canopy, so I'm able to... I was able to watch the film on there for free. So you should absolutely, if you are a student in a college or if you belong to your local public library, definitely check out the site. See if you can use it for free because if you can, there's a lot of great stuff on there. Including Frederick Wiseman's films, right. which are just being added. Well, that's what and I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what's... I mean, like that, but like beyond like just signing up for this, like they've never been streaming before. Right. It's sort of, yeah, yeah it, and it, it's, it's a great site and they have a ton of criterions on there. Sort of, so if you don't have Filmstruck, can't afford Filmstruck, haven't signed up for Filmstruck, um, it's absolutely worth at least checking because if you belong to one of these uh, organizations, it is free. So this is kind of a ghost story like a ghost story. It's less about you know the terror of someone haunting you from beyond the grave and more about these ideas about love and loss being you know and these relationships being thwarted by death and kind of the agony of losing someone and not being able to let go or not appreciating what you had until it's over and it is also about ambition and uh, in a way that is definitely not timely at all in any way whatsoever it is also about the agony and the torture that women suffer because men are all thoughtless, egotistical, power-mad jerks. 
Uh, just again, there's no way in which you can read that as a as a still timely subject. Uh, it is set in feudal Japan. It mostly follows two peasants with very big dreams. Uh, there's Genjuro who wants to sell his pottery and become, you know, fabulously wealthy. And then there's Tobei who wants to use his cut of the pottery profits to become a samurai. And their respective wives are constantly trying to tell them to forget about it, to settle down, to be happy with what they have, their families, their children, their lives, their wives. But they just can't resist the pull of money and glory. And their village is constantly under attack from bandits and soldiers and in one of these attacks or in the aftermath of one of these attacks the men are separated from the women and one of them winds up selling his wares to this beautiful noble woman who invites him back to her home and kind of seduces him and then um Tobey, the guy who wants to be a samurai, he takes credit for um the death of this famous warrior he kind of stumbles on on this corpse and he earns enough money to become a samurai, have his own battalion. So they both get what they want, but this is sort of a moral fable, and so they both pay this terrible price. And that is where the ghosts, plural, come in. I won't sort of reveal that because if you haven't seen the movie, part of the beauty of it is kind of discovering who are the ghosts. It's not always obvious. It's not like uh, there's no one in a sheet, although there is one sort of uh, costume that does evoke the sheet, the mm. Casey Affleck sheet um, ghost. And overall, I thought this uh, film absolutely lived up to its reputation as one of the masterpieces of Japanese cinema. Um, beyond uh, sort of the moral aspect, the cautionary tale aspect, it is just absolutely gorgeous. Mizuguchi uh, was famous as a filmmaker for what was called like scroll shots, these very long takes with pans and and a little movement sort of designed to evoke Japanese scroll paintings. And there are some truly incredible ones in this movie. Um, the the most famous scene is is this one that's set on this lake that's full of fog and very atmospheric. And there are these other shots that are just jaw dropping, including this um, this pan away from two of the characters that's combined with like this seamless dissolve from that scene into the next scene where it's just so graceful and beautiful. It like, I don't know, it just puts you into this kind of dreamlike state, the way the movie, the way the camera sort of gliding, almost like a, a ghost within the story. And, um, the framing is magnificent too. The way that scenes of violence or sexuality are shot, um, just so that, you know, that he can sort of address these very adult, Probably at the time, you know, you couldn't show these things, but he gets away with it by framing things out of the frame or putting, you know, if someone is about to be beheaded, uh, frankly, you know, putting just an object right in front of the 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 act um, or just so that he can, he can sort of discuss these things or almost show these things um, and get away with it. It's really pretty incredible. And as for the ghosts, they're not really scary per se. It's probably even a less scary film than a ghost story is. Um, but in the same way as a ghost story, the movie does give you this notion that uh, our lives are so kind of fleeting and small in the in the totality of everything and that we need to appreciate what we have while we have it and maybe not worry so much about, you know, becoming samurai. So that's it's a valuable lesson for me. I was a universal thinking, one. Yes, I, I was thinking about it. You know, I was thinking if I could just get a suit of armor. Uh, no, but this is it's an it's an incredible film. Uh, and, uh, a, a shame that I took me so long to see it, but glad I finally did, uh, get to, it is available on Filmstruck if you are a Filmstruck subscriber, but if you're not, again, check out canopy.com, canopy with a K, starts with the letter K. So that's my first pick. All right. My second pick is also a Japanese film, though it's from about half a century later, um, you know, it is also, in fact, about uh, the smallness of human existence when compa compared to the uh, terrible expanse of time, but in a really dark way, in a, a much grimmer and bleaker way than a ghost story. Uh, and it is Pulse, which is now streaming on Shudder. Uh, and I, I went with this film because uh, I, I think that there's something about the way a ghost story leaned into this deliberately cartoonish image of a ghost uh, that really made me want to talk about another film that felt like it did something kind of unusual with the concept and visualizing of ghosts. You know, something that uh, in in some ways a ghost story is, is so kind of like archetypal, an image of ghosts, like it's literally an emoji, right? Um, and, and then the ghosts 
that Pulse uses are, I think, so memorable in a more abstract way. Kiyoshi Kurosawa, the, the filmmaker, it has conceived of some really unsettlingly memorable ghosts uh, in his films. In his kind of most recent, uh, his more recent Paris set film, Daguerreotype, uh, which I think is available on demand now. There is a dead woman in one scene in the, in what is easily the best scene of a kind of sluggish movie who just is so eerie and the way that she's filmed and the way that she moves. Uh, and then it, it made me think of Pulse, which is a film in which there is a ghostly apocalypse that really happens. Uh, you know, Pulse is a 2001 film, uh, and it was one of the kind of key Japanese horror wave, uh, for kind of big wave of Japanese horror films. Um, but it's also very unlike The Ring or The Grudge. It does not try and scare you in a traditional sense, uh, though there are moments in which it's very scary. Uh, it's, it's much more elliptical. And I think it's maybe unsurprising that when it got that terrible American remake in 2006, um, it was flattened into something that was like, oh no, a virus is letting ghosts in through the internet. Uh, which I guess is sort of what the Japanese pulse is about, but much more it is about, uh, kind of urban isolation and despair and, uh, the idea that like modern life is very much at odds with this promise of eternal connection that the internet has, uh, you know, brought across. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I would say that pulse, even though it's about dial up modems, uh, and is like extremely outdated in that way, it's thematically just as, uh, as current and maybe even more so, you know, given the way we talk about what social media does to us. Um, and, and I think that the way, uh, one of its lingering images is of footage of people on screens alone in their rooms. And it's unclear if they're supposed to be alive or dead. Um, and it almost doesn't matter the more that the movie goes along. Um, the ghosts in, in pulse are these like really eerie, uh, dark, kind of like desaturated things. Uh, they have a tendency to become inexchangeable or interchangeable with dark smudges on the wall, which is also what gets left by people who commit suicide in the movie. Um, and there is an early encounter with a ghost that is like really one of the most disturbing sequences I can think of in a movie ever. Um, and it's one in which uh, the ghost looks like a normal person. Like most of the ghosts, they look like normal people, only kind of blurrier and glitchier and desaturated. Uh, and then she starts moving. And she moves like someone who has never actually occupied a human body before. Um, like she's traveling through a thicker atmosphere, maybe than everyone else is. Um, it is like really hair-raising, um, especially when she stumbles. And it just doesn't look like something a human body would do. What, the way she stumbles and then writes herself. Uh, Matt, I've told you that I'm like really susceptible to sequences in which something comes right at the camera slowly. Okay. Uh, like it follows. Right. Excuse me, the heebie-jeebies forever. The scene of Bob crawling towards the camera in uh, Twin Peaks. Mm. I can't even watch it. Okay. Uh, but this scene in Pulse, I would say, is also one of the great ones in this way uh, because it has a ghost just like creeping very... It's like the opposite of a jump scare. Mm. It is someone really slowly approaching the camera. And a it's, lurch scare. I guess you could call it that. It's Crawl just scare? Like it, it just fills you with like this Shuffle total scare? horror. And I think one of the things that is so memorable about the ghosts in Pulse is that uh, the movie manages to make you think about them not in relationship to the living. You know, that like we still think of... Uh, we still think of ghosts as like having business to finish, right? Like even in a ghost story, mm -hmm. business to finish. Um, to like their their um, their existences kind of revolve around the living in some way, uh, usually in fiction. And in Pulse, the ghosts don't seem to be anything other than kind of hungry for more. They aren't really concerned about what the living, what benefits the living or harms them. They just want like. They're, they're almost like these hungry forces um, that manage to suck the kind of will to live out of people they encounter. Uh, it's a great movie. And I think it's it's held up so well, I think, especially given that it's a film about technology. It's held up astonishingly well. Uh, even if the effects are not great, the best effects of them are not digital at all. Mm. They are just this like fantastical 
awful imagery. Uh, it's a great film, and I think some of the greatest ghosts that I can think of on screen are in it. Uh, that is Pulse, and it is streaming on Shudder. Okay, uh, excellent pick for my second pick. I wanted to to go like a really classical ghost haunted house movie to kind of honor the other side of a ghost story. And so I picked 1959's House on Haunted Hill, uh, directed by William Castle, who is less famous for his movies than for his outlandish and, frankly, tacky uh, ways that he sold those movies. Half a century before Hugh Jackman, Allison, this was the real greatest showman. It was William Castle. He was the, he was the king of the, the gimmicks. And House on Haunted Hill was originally released in theaters with a gimmick called Emergo, in which a skeleton would emerge from the ceiling and hover over the audience during a key scene in the film. Obviously, unless you have some rope and pulleys and a skeleton handy, you will not get this experience at home, but you can watch the rest of the film on a bunch of different uh, online sites, including Amazon Prime, Tubi, and Fandor. The film is about a rich jerk who loves to scare people, played by the cinema's greatest rich jerk who loved to scare people, Vincent Price. He offers a bunch of strangers $10,000 each if they will spend a night with him in this haunted house, which, at least in the exterior shots, is played by Frank Lloyd Wright's Ennis House, which has also appeared in other movies, including Blade Runner. Uh, why he is willing to blow 50 grand on a spooky party is part of the point of the movie, so I won't spoil that, but it does involve uh, Vincent Price's character and his absolute and hilariously unhidden hatred of his wife. Uh, Annabelle, played by Carol Omart. Uh, he can't even pretend that he just – he doesn't desperately want to murder her as <laughs> any way he can as fast as he can. It's just hilarious how uh, how much he wants to kill this poor woman. Um, the movie is uh, over 50 years old, uh, so much, much older than Pulse. Uh, and like Pulse, a lot of the uh, – probably more than Pulse, the effects are much, much worse. There's, at times, they're very hokey. Um, including, uh, this very important plot point. Uh, the house has a vat of acid in the basement, like built into the floor. I mean, who doesn't like literally there's a giant hole in the floor filled with acid just in case, I guess. And they specify this acid only dissolves flesh and hair, not like metal or anything else. I don't know. That sounds very handy to me. Yeah. I, I, okay. Remind me not to go back to your house anytime <laughs> soon. Um, but I have to say, there are other parts of this movie that are very scary, that are atmospheric as the various guests wander the house, encountering strange people, strange sights, and possibly, yes, some ghosts. And you also have Vincent Price, who is one of my all-time favorite actors. Uh, he basically has no range as an actor. You know, like you don't see Vincent Price as – as a, I don't know, like a star baseball player or uh, the charismatic leading man in a romantic comedy. But within his range, you know, mad scientists, evil millionaires who want to bother people, he was basically one of the best who ever lived at it. Uh, nobody could threaten to murder people with a smile on his face and a scotch in his hand uh, better than Vincent Price. And that is basically all he does in this movie. He smiles at people. He He says – very charming things. He drinks scotch and he tries to kill people. And uh, I, I enjoyed it. The movie's like 75 minutes long. It's perfect, the perfect length. Uh, I guess it's not quite as good without the emergo, without a skeleton jumping out of the ceiling. But other than that, it's a, it's a, it's a really fun old school horror movie. It is House on Haunted Hill. And again, you can watch it in a bunch of places. I think it might be out of copyright, which is why it's easy to find. But it is available on Amazon, Prime, Tubi, and Fandor. All right, let's wrap things up with Behind the Eight Ball. Uh, we give you three new releases on streaming. We give you two listener recommendations. You guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our My List on Netflix. Allison, who's going to go first this week? Uh, I'll go first. All right. Well, let's start with three new releases on streaming. Okay. First up, new to Amazon, is Brawl in Cell Block 99, the second film from Bone Tomahawk's S. Craig Zoller. And an action movie that reportedly, I have yet to see this one, begins with Vince Vaughn beating up a car. Uh, I have seen. I, I, I can confirm that yes, is true. I have seen, in fact, clips of that. In fact, I think I made a GIF of that, uh, and then goes from there into prison and brawling, as promised. Correct. 
uh, earned a lot of critical acclaim. This one has a glo- like really great Rotten Tomato score. It was people a few people's best of list uh, picks. Uh, maybe this will come up in a bit later in the episode. Maybe. But for now, let's just say it's streaming on Amazon. New to Netflix is The Age of Shadows, uh, the most recent film from Kim Ji-Woon, the very talented Korean director of I Saw the Devil and A Tale of Two Sisters, among others. Uh, This one is a period thriller starring Gong Yoo and Song Kang-ho, everyone's favorite uh, omnipresent Korean actor, set in the 1920s during the Japanese occupation and is about resistance fighters and sympathizers and collaborators, but is also mostly about just outrageously, sumptuously staged set pieces on trains, on rooftops. They're really like incredible and and Kim has no problem letting the movie stop for 20 minutes to have this like thrilling set piece. It's a lot of fun. The Age of Shadows on Netflix. Finally, also new to Netflix is Super Dark Times, a promising directorial debut by Kevin Phillips. That's also a kind of nice counterpoint to all of the 80s and 90s nostalgia we've been in the midst of. Um, there is nothing especially cozy about the 1996 that this film is set in. Uh, in which some high school misfits deal very poorly with a horrible accident that they are involved in. Um, so that is Super Dark Times. It is on Netflix. Okay. How about two listener recommendations? We've got one from Dion in East Lansing who writes, This is a very enthusiastic recommend for Taika Waititi's first feature-length film, Boy, streaming on Amazon Prime. It's actually his second. Uh, Eagle vs. Shark, I think, might be the first. Uh, anyway, the time is 1984. 11-year-old boy lives in rural New Zealand with his 7-year-old brother, his grandmother, and a passel of cousins, his mother having passed away at the time of his brother's birth. Boy's two heroes are Michael Jackson and his own father, Alamein, who has been absent for years in the can for robbery, as it turns out. One day, Boy's grandmother leaves him in charge of his cousins while she attends a distant funeral, and shortly thereafter, his father shows up along with a couple of his gang members. Do not expect terrible things to happen. Like all of Taika's work, this film is extremely charming. Boy does have to learn how to resolve his, uh, resolve his vision of his father, the conquering hero, with the man he really is, complete with what seem like unlimited foibles and frailties. But coming, this coming to terms plays out over a series of genuine scenarios grounded with realistic dialogue. Alamein may not fit anyone's idea of a good parent, but really there are no good guys or bad guys here, just people getting by the best they know how. I really like this movie. After reading that it was influenced by YTT's 2004 Oscar-nominated live-action short, Two Cars, One Night, I immediately looked that up on YouTube and watched it. I loved that film, too. By the way, make sure not to turn Boy off until the credits have rolled. There is a delightful mid credit scene worth waiting for. Thank you for that, Dion. Uh, I think this is like a, the second uh, Taika film recommendation we've gotten in the last few weeks i think well deserved he's hot right now yeah he is hot right now but also like boy has he made some really charming movies um so thank you for that and then a second recommendation from andy in philadelphia who writes i'd like to recommend shot caller on amazon prime a 2017 movie from the director of snitch it's another grimy crime film with a social conscience meant to expose a horrid reality of the American underbelly. Starring Jamie Lannister from Game of Thrones as a stockbroker, is that his real name? Who goes to prison for a DUI manslaughter and ends up ranking with the Aryan Nation. I don't know how likely much of this plot is, but Shot Color is still an extremely watchable film. I had to take a break from work to go... Uh, to go to my car and watch the last few minutes. Actually, that's like a really, that is a really good recommendation. You just can't, <laughs> I you can't gotta, leave I, something alone. I You've got to go. this in my car. Yeah. I can't let it lay. All I've right. actually heard some, I've heard uh, good things from that from others too. So thank you for that, Andy, for Shot Caller on Amazon Prime. All right. And how about one film chosen blindly by number Robbie on my list? You gave me number 19. And made me count all the way yes, down yep. to number you 19, betcha. Uh, which is She's Gotta Have It, the Spike Lee Netflix series adaptation of Lee's own 1986 film, was recently renewed for a second season. I added it to my my list. I've heard some people love this. Some people did not like it at all, um, which I guess is Spike Lee It, it just came out. How did it get so far down there? There's been a 19? lot of new things. Man. 
I know. You keep a very active my list. Well, I do a lot of maintaining of our fantastic social media feed. Give mm. us a follow at FilmSpottingSVU at Twitter. Um, and so I'm very up on all of the things that are new to Netflix. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you. <laughs> and All right, Matt, are you ready? Yes. Give me three new releases. Okay. First up, new on Netflix is the Netflix original film, The Polka King, starring Jack Black as Jan Lewin, a fascinating real-life figure who headed his own outlandish polka band and also uh, took many members of his community in an elaborate Ponzi scheme. The film also stars Jenny Slate, Jason Schwartzman, Vanessa Bayer, and Jackie Weaver as Black's cranky mother-in-law. I saw this movie at Sundance last year and really enjoyed it. Seemed like it kind of fell through the cracks, uh, you know, among some of the other higher profile, splashier, better films. This is really just a very solid uh, comedy biopic. Netflix picked it up and now it is streaming over there along with a documentary about the real Jan Lewin, the man who would be Polka King. So you can watch that and also just The Polka King starring Jack Black on Netflix. Next up on Amazon Prime is Capricorn One, one of the most entertaining and most loony conspiracy thrillers of the 1970s. It's essentially an adaptation of a conspiracy theory, a real conspiracy theory, the one that claims that NASA faked the moon landing, possibly, if you've uh, seen certain documentaries, possibly with the help of director Stanley Kubrick. In this movie version, it is about the crew of the first manned mission to Mars, and the crew is played by James Brolin. Sam Waterston and O.J. Simpson, and they are forced by a, a corrupt, evil NASA official. Ooh, those NASA officials, those always causing trouble. dirty jerks. Uh, they are forced to fake uh, this landing on a soundstage. I'm not going to go into why. But then when the spaceship, which they are not on, the real spaceship burns up on reentry. Mm. Now the still living astronauts become a major problem that has to be eliminated. It is bonkers, but kind of great. And it is streaming right now on Amazon prime Capricorn one. Finally, one of the more memorable Michael Fassbender movies and performances in recent years. Frank is now available on Hulu. It's about a man who leads an indie rock band uh, while constantly wearing a giant paper mache head. He never takes off. Uh, I didn't love the movie as a whole, but uh, Fassbender's performance underneath this head is really quite something to see, especially if you are a fan of his. So that is Frank, available now on Hulu. Okay, give me two listener recommendations. All right, this first one comes from Ashley in Brooklyn, who writes, I wanted to recommend the movie Kill Ratio. Oh, I'm, I'm already excited, just from the title. Uh, it's currently streaming on Netflix. It stars nobody I had heard of except Tom Hooper. Uh, Tom Hopper, excuse me, who plays Billy Bones on the excellent star series Black Sails. I guess this can double as a recommendation for Black Sails as well, since seasons one through three are streaming on Hulu. Hopper plays a guy who might be in the FBI or CIA and is in a fictional Eastern European country for unspecified reasons. It's all an excuse for him to flex his impressive arms while expertly loading and unloading machine guns or doing sword fights. It's surprisingly fun and funny, and I will watch as many variations on this theme as the studios care to make. Uh, this sounds good. I'm going to add it to my, my list as well. Kill Ratio. What a great title on Netflix. Uh, thank you, Ashley, for that recommendation. We also have a recommendation from Adam. Adam writes, I've had two – I've had YouTube Red for ages. YouTube Red is like the YouTube pay service, uh, but never actually watched any of their originals until now. The new series, Do You Want to See a Dead Body? This is also a good title, which is a bizarre comedy. Only two things are given in every episode. There will be some celebrity playing themselves – and at some point, Rob Hubel will ask them the titular line. From there, anything can happen. A botched road trip. Rob being a horrible third, third wheel as Terry Crews meets a potential date. John Cho getting stuck in quicksand and so on. I'm halfway through and so far – they never really explain why Rob Hubel <laughs> knows where all these corpses are located. Each bite-sized episode is around 12 to 20 minutes long, which makes it easy to binge and just keep watching. I, I don't have YouTube read. I don't know if this is going to make me sign up for it. It's come close to me. Just the idea that Rob Hubel just knows uh, where an unlimited supply of dead bodies I have to say, <laughs> if I ever sign up for YouTube read, this will be among the first things I watch for sure. This sounds fantastic. Do you want to see a dead body? Uh, so thank you for that recommendation, Adam. 
Okay. Now, what about one from your my list? You gave me number 13. I, not not as bad as 19, but still not great. I mean, right. I can all the way... 19 as revenge for my 13? No. I just picked a number. Uh, number 13 on my, 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 my list right now is Oh Hello on Broadway, uh, starring Nick Kroll and John Mulaney. Two delusional geriatrics reveal curious pasts, share a love of tuna, and, a, and welcome a surprise guest in the filming of this popular Broadway comedy. I did not get to see this. I think this was on Broadway when I when my first daughter was born, and so I was never able to see it. Um, I heard this was really funny, and so it's on Netflix. I edited it on Netflix a little while ago and haven't gotten around to watching it yet, but mm. eventually – now that I have two daughters, maybe when they're both gone uh, in 16 years, I'll have enough time to watch Oh Hello on Broadway. All right. Let's get to our listener's choice options for our next episode. We have uh, we have three, uh, three different recent films, uh, indie films to discuss potentially depending on your votes. You are going to choose one of these three. I believe I have the first one, Allison. You do. It is called Wonderstruck. It is directed by Todd Haynes. It will be available on Amazon Prime starting on January 19th. It is the story of a young boy in the Midwest told simultaneously with a tale about a young girl in New York from 50 years ago as they both seek the same mysterious connection. Again, it's directed by Todd Haynes. It's written by Brian Selznick based on one of his books. He is also the author of Hugo. So sort of uh, maybe that gives you a sense of the vibe. Uh, Julianne Moore is in it. I mean, obviously, it's a Todd Haynes movie. Um, Allison, this is one of the movies from this year that I just never got around to seeing. I know you've seen it. It was one of my smoothie picks. Yes, but I don't think you were a huge fan of it. I was not a huge fan of it. So if you want to make Allison <laughs> suffer and watch this film that she does not like again, uh, I guess this is your 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 go-to vote here. I haven't seen it. I, I mean – And it, some people do like this movie quite do. a bit. Yes. Uh, I think that it was generally, I would say, like less well-received than the average – Haynes film. And certainly less well-received than Carol, but... But still... It did have some very strong supporters. It has, and I'd say, like, it's, you know, I hate always using it for a shortcut, but it has a positive Rotten Tomatoes score. Generally, the majority of people were fairly, you know, positively inclined towards this. Mm -hmm. Except for me. Not me. Not you. All right. Well, that is option number one, Wonderstruck. That's going to be available on Amazon Prime on January 19th. Option number two is... Ingrid Goes West. Uh, this would be the kind of dark comedy, black comedy, uh, directed by Matt Spicer. Uh, I think it was his directorial debut and stars uh, Aubrey Plaza as the title character who is an Instagram obsessed, uh, kind of self-destructive, maybe unstable woman who is... Uh, moves to Los Angeles and immediately gets embroiled in stalking someone and trying to kind of single white female her uh, based on her fabulous looking Instagram lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, you know, something that explores our Instagram age, maybe not quite as dramatically as Pulse. <laughs> Less ghosts. It's pretty dark, but though. But pretty dark. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot to talk about there. Plenty. Particularly, um, I think, maybe with how we use social media, which is a relatively new topic for films, but maybe yes. there's something there. Uh, but that will be on Hulu on the 22nd. So uh, if you're interested in that one, keep an eye out for Hulu. That's our option number two, Ingrid Goes West. Okay. Option number three. And I'm going to guess this is going to be the winner, but we'll see. Option number three is Brawl in Cell Block 99. Allison already mentioned it, directed by S. Craig Zoller and available on Amazon Prime. Former boxer turned drug runner lands in a prison battleground after a deal gets deadly. It stars Vince Vaughn, uh, Jennifer Carpenter, Don Johnson, Fred Melamed, and Udo Kier, giving a very Udo Kierish performance. What if we do an Udo Kier episode? Oh, that's a, the greatest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, that would be fabulous. Uh, we did review S. Craig Zoller's Bone Tomahawk on SVU number 103. Uh, I wasn't the hugest fan of that movie. I, I remember we were, both, we were like, mixed a little on underwhelmed. It, but there was like a lot, I think, of pro like. Script, a lot of promise. The script certainly also has a lot of like great dialogue. Yes, right? I think we were we were sort of hopeful that uh, S. Craig Zoller could sort of fulfill the promise of it, but a bit underwhelmed compared to sort of the hype that that movie got. Sure. Um, Allison has not seen this movie. You have seen. I it. have seen this movie, and I enjoyed it. Yes. I definitely liked it more than I liked Bone Tomahawk. I won't say too much more than that. Vince Van Vaughn does beat up a car. Okay. And he gives easily the beefiest Vince Vaughn performance of his career. 
He's just that's, like a big slab of beef in this movie. I appreciate that. He's just big and bald and beefy. <laughs> Are you excited to see it yet? I am. I'm thrilled. Actually, now I can't wait. I'm going to yes. go home and watch it immediately. So <laughs> so get your beefy Vince Vaughn in option number three, Brawl in Cell Block 99. That's available, I believe, right now on Amazon Prime. All right. Well, which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? Uh, you can email us your pick at svu at filmspottingsvu.com or, and this is much easier, just enter in the poll that is at the bottom of the page over at filmspottingsvu.com. We also post a link to that poll on our social media feeds. Uh, you've got to get your vote in by Monday, January 22nd at noon. That's when we call it. And that's when we announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at filmspottingsvu and also over on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash filmspottingsvu. We'll try and give you all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, January 30th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.bandcamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more recommendations, streaming recommendations, and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at Filmspotting SVU. That is where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions. Allison is constantly adding things to her my list so that she can recommend things to you. Uh, we also share recommendations on, on Facebook, facebook.com slash SVU. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening.